Hi, I'm Mark Rutterman. Coming up on Front Row, we'll preview Tuesday's midterm elections. Analysts predict diesel fuel shortages in the Southeast, and the U.S. Supreme Court considers the fate of affirmative action in college admissions. Next. Major funding for Front Row with Mark Rotterman is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the Lightning Round provided by Nicholas B. and Lucy Mayo Body Foundation, A.E. Finley Foundation, N.C. Realtors, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. Welcome back. Joining the conversation, Mitch Kokai with the John Locke Foundation, political analyst Joe Stewart, Colin Campbell, editor of the North Carolina Tribune, and public relations consultant Pat Ryan. Joe, why don't we begin with the battle for control of the U.S. House and Senate? Yeah, very interestingly, you know, we know the U.S. Senate is held now 50-50 with the vice president being the deciding tie-breaking vote uh, in the election of 2022, the idea was that the Republicans, as a result of the dynamic of a midterm election, might have the opportunity to pick up enough seats to have an actual majority in the U.S. Senate. Um, what that necessitates, of course, is that the Republicans hold all the states where they currently have a Republican senator and then turn a particular state where there was a Democrat. Well, it looked like a really difficult lift three months ago, but August. not so much now. Right. <laughs> not so much now. States like Pennsylvania that look like they could even possibly be a Democratic pickup are now starting to trend for the Republican candidate. Now, here in North Carolina, our U.S. Senate race, Richard Byrd decided not to run for election. So this is a Republican-held U.S. Senate seat. So in effect, the Republicans need to hold North Carolina if their strategy to take the majority in the U.S. Senate is to work. Ted Budd pulling away in the polling that's come out most recently, showing him on average the real clear politics average of publicly available polls, showing him up about five percentage points on average. And they make the point on their website that going back to 2016 to this current election, Republican performance in U.S. Senate races in North Carolina has generally been about two and a half percentage points greater than whatever the polling showed in the final week. So I think we will see a Republican U.S. Senator in North Carolina. Okay. So they'll, they'll hold theirs. In the U.S. House, again, Republicans need to pick up five seats in the U.S. Congress uh, to take in, uh, the majority in the House of Representatives. It didn't look like North Carolina would add to that. Right. But now, one race down in the northeastern corner of the state, Don Davis, okay. a Democrat running against Sandy Smith in a district that leans Democrat, it might ultimately end up, as a result of the red wave, being a net gain for Republicans in terms of our congressional delegation aiding to their efforts right. in the U.S. House. You know what struck me, Mitch, was the massive shift of, of independent women to the GOP. Yeah, we've really seen that in recent months, and I think that shows that some of the strategy that the Democrats had employed ever since that Dobbs decision may not have been the best way to go. People are focusing much more, it seems, on the economic issues, inflation, the fact that the economy doesn't seem to be performing as well as people would like. That hits people in the pocketbooks. There's also still concern about violent crime, immigration issues, and abortion is an important issue, but it doesn't seem to be the driver the Democrats have been painting it out to be. What are the closing messages by 
each party, my friend. Well, you still see the abortion message going hard on the Democratic side. Uh, you see them, you know, democracy at stake sort of issues, uh, sort of trying to tie to proponents to Trump, that sort of thing. Uh, Republicans are really going hard, particularly on the crime issue, but obviously inflation has been what they've been hitting on from day one, and they're hitting even harder now. Those are quality of life issues, though, right? Yeah, those are issues that people think about and experience every single day when they buy gas or go to the grocery store. Um, you know, I think I read an article a couple of weeks ago where a, a prominent Democrat said that we peaked early on the abortion issue, right? You see that going down in voter salience, and recent polls show that the top issues by far are inflation, crime, and the economy. Are you watching the Arizona race? I am. So what I do a bit is, is I look at uh, three, different, uh, three different websites. One is 538, which is an, sort of an amalgamation, right. a complex algorithm. One is Real Clear Politics, which we discussed earlier. And the other is Predicted, which is the betting markets. Um, <laughs> okay. And I, I, I find it interesting that 538, which I respect, they have a good methodology, they give um, Republicans a 35% shot of winning in Arizona, but the betting markets give them a better than 50% Okay, I want chance. to go around the horn. Predictions, will the Republicans gain and win seats and control of the House and Senate? Definitely the House. I think the Senate looks pretty likely to. Joe? I absolutely agree. I, I do think the Republicans get at least 51, probably 52 seats in the U.S. Senate. Colin? Uh, definitely the House. The Senate, I think, most likely to maybe get one seat to get to 51. Predictions? Both House and Senate. I do, too, and I think it's going to be about 53 Senate seats. I want to move on and talk to Colin about the, the races for control of, of in the General Assembly, the House and Senate races. Yeah, and, and so it's almost not really a race for control, given the dynamics nationally that uh, we just talked about. Um, the districts are such... Super things, majorities. Yeah, super majorities is really what we're talking about. So right. this is the ability of uh, the Republicans to have a veto-proof majority. So if Cooper vetoes their bills, there's really no way he can get enough Democrats, uh, enough votes behind him uh, to... Um, block an override vote. Um, and so where we're at with that, uh, the House, they need to pick up three seats beyond what they've got now. On the Republican side, the Senate's only two seats. So the Senate seems a little bit more likely uh, to get to that dynamic. The challenge is it doesn't, those, those numbers might make it seem easier than it actually is because you did have redistricting. So it's not necessarily knock off two vulnerable Democrats who are incumbents. You've got districts that, uh, there's some new districts that are heavily weighted towards the Democrats in some of the urban areas. Uh, so it's really sort of the, the overall picture statewide. And you've got competitive races that are getting even more than a million dollars of spending in a single race in the Raleigh suburbs, Charlotte suburbs, uh, Wilmington and Wilson areas are sort of the key areas of the state to watch where the districts are really close to 50-50 and could determine, you know, where we end up on this. Joe, the governor's been very involved in fundraising and advertising. Yeah, in fact, a significant portion of the money that's come through the Democratic Party to state legislative candidates uh, has come through the efforts of the governor. And so, of course, I think, as Colin points out, the governor's motivated interest here is he would prefer not to serve out the final two years of his second term, unable to stop anything that the legislature does. A lame duck if they get supermajority. Absolutely. And it seems as though the governor's strategy is to focus on House races because of this common wisdom now that the Republicans are likely to get a supermajority in the Senate. It's less certain on the House side. So a lot of the emphasis in these final few weeks has been on House races. Some of the dynamics that are hard to see, like in Wake County, you have a very strong Republican candidate for sheriff. And that's undoubtedly going to help Republican candidates running in legislative races in Wake County just because that's not an up ballot dynamic, but the down ballot its significance is Donnie Harrison, the Republican candidate, is a great field team who's out there getting people to vote Republican. Mitch, sheriffs do have a lot to do with these races, don't they? 
Yeah, they certainly do because people look at sheriffs and this is a crime issue once again that's something that's very important. So if people are looking at the sheriff and deciding one way or the other which party to go, that might reflect how they're going to vote in other races. I think another important thing, we've already touched on it, but Governor Cooper, of course, is focusing so much on these legislative races because in his first two years in office, when Republicans still had a supermajority, he vetoed 28 bills, 23 of those vetoes were overridden. Since Republicans have lost the supermajority, he's vetoed 47 bills. All of those vetoes have been sustained. My friend. So I, I'm looking at two races on election night, and those are the two uh, Wake County State Senate races. If Republicans win both of those races, Who they... Are they? Uh, so E.C. Sykes in northern Wake County, um, and then in southern Wake County, you have Sidney Batch as the incumbent, and she, they both, they're both very competitive races. Uh, Mark Caballero is running in the southern Wake County district, and if Republicans win both of those seats, then I think they have comfortable supermajorities in the Senate. They can still get there by winning the, the Lee seat in New Hanover County and the Hannig race in right. northeastern North Carolina. Um, but if they win those two wake seats, they'll have, I think, very comfortable supermajorities. I'll wrap this up in about 40 seconds, my friend. Yeah, so I think those are definitely ones to watch on the House side. Um, it'll be fascinating to see if some of the last-minute personal attack ads move the needle on any of these. There's a House race in Cabarrus County where the Democrats are running ads uh, with a fake mugshot of the Republican candidate. Uh, so we'll see if any of these sort of get beyond the, the overall trend that we're seeing at a national level. Mitch, just quickly, how, how uh, impactful are, these, are the national races on these House races? Well, I think they could the national be. National atmosphere. Yeah, they definitely could be because a lot of people don't really follow the local elections all that closely. And so they say, hey, I'm going to vote for a Republican this time or I'm going to vote for a Democrat. And although you can't anymore have that straight ticket voting that we used to have, a lot of people will actually do that as they fill out the bubbles. Okay, we've got to roll on. I want to talk to you, uh, Pat, about the uh, potential diesel fuel shortages this uh this winter in the uh, southeast. Yeah, so last week, Mansfield Energy, which is a major fuel supply and logistics company, uh, issued a warning saying that they're predicting a diesel fuel shortage. So the country usually has about 35 to 40 days of diesel fuel supply working its way through the system. Right now, it's down to about 25 days worth of supply. Um, White House economic advisor Brian Deese said that that's, quote, unacceptably low. So the question is why and what are the impacts, right? Um, the why seems to be not just one single shock that's causing this. It seems to be a lot of smaller issues. Um, first and foremost is that since 2019, there's been a, a reduction in American refining capacity because there have been some accidents, some refineries are down because of maintenance. Again, there's not one sort of simple explanation here. And simultaneous to that, there's been, of course, an increase in demand for diesel fuel as the economy has uh, moved out of uh, the COVID recession and demand has continued to increase despite record high or historically high interest rates. Um, at the same time, Russian sanctions and a looming EU import ban on Russian fuel products is uh, constricting supplies and causing futures markets increase. So all this means that... Do we the need more pipelines, you think? So we, we saw what happened when the really the, the largest liquid fuel pipeline, the Colonial Pipeline, um, went down for a few days a year and a half ago. There were immediate okay. gas shortages. So certainly having more pipelines would create redundancies in the system. Um, right. But right now, the biggest issue doesn't seem to be that we're going to run out of diesel fuel. Okay. It seems to be that the constricted supply and rising demand are forcing prices up. And that means that we're paying more for everything because though you may not drive a diesel fuel car, Diesel right. is used for commercial operations, truckers, et cetera. I need to go to Mitch. Mitch, 
home heating oil, probably way up this uh, winter, right? Yeah, that's going to be bad news. This is the exact worst time to have these fuel issues is right as we're getting closer and closer to winter. And I think you, you mentioned the pipeline word. I think that is something that's significant because one of the reasons that we're not seeing enough pipelines is that there is an active effort against all types of pipelines on the environmental left. And at least one party has been less inclined to fight back against that, and that's the party that's in control right now. This could really cause inflation to go up, price of groceries, price, price of goods, because that, you know, these trucks deliver the goods. Yeah, significantly, it will impact consumer optimism about the economy. If you start to go to the grocery store and see large swaths of the shelves empty of goods because trucks are not available to deliver them, you begin to have less confidence in the overall economy of the country. I think all of these are factors that will lead to the greater probability of a recession next year, not just the economic impact, but the psychological impact on American consumers. You know what I'm hearing also is that there could be a railroad strike after the election. Are you hearing that? Potentially, uh, you know, they've narrowly averted one with the Biden administration and others sort of doing some last minute negotiations a few months back. Uh, if that comes up again, you know, you don't have necessarily the pressure to avoid one right before the election. So it, it might not get resolved quite as quickly as the previous one. And if you couple that with the issues in uh, diesel fuel, I mean, the railroads go on strike. There's much more demand for trucking. And if trucking is significantly more expensive than it was a year ago, then that sort of compounds all the problems we're talking about. Pat, put this to bed in about 30 seconds. Yeah, so we, we discussed earlier, there's no real major uh, shock that has caused these issues in the diesel supply chain. A railroad strike would be just that shock, and it would take what's turning into uh, something of a discomforting situation into an immediate crisis because there would be chaos in the delivery and transportation of diesel fuel uh, in just the whole supply chain would really... Great rep. I want to talk to Mitch about the affirmative action case in college admissions in front of the Supreme Court. It was heard this week. That's right. There's a group called Students for Fair Admissions. It's tied to this uh, conservative activist named Edward Bloom. Back in 2014, the group filed suit against both Harvard and UNC Chapel Hill about the use of race in the admissions policies. And basically, both of these suits took direct aim at a 2003 precedent in the U.S. Supreme Court in a case called Grutter v. Bollinger. And in that case, the U.S. Supreme Court said that colleges could use race as a factor in admissions. But even at that time, the majority opinion from then Justice Sandra Day O'Connor said, look, this is something that we are approving for now, but we don't think this is a permanent thing. Within 25 years, these race-based admissions should be gone forever. Well, by the time this court ruling comes out, it's going to be 20 years after Grutter, and there are a number of people saying that maybe it's time now to get rid of them. Now, there's been a lot of support from the universities uh, across the country for both the UNC case and the Harvard case, which were both in front of the U.S. Supreme Court for oral arguments this week. Even the U.S. government is on the side of the universities, the solicitor general participating in those oral arguments. But there are also a lot of people who say that the conservative justices seem to be less inclined to go along with this. They didn't need to take up either of these cases they decided to take up both, including the UNC right. case, which had not even gone through the Court of Appeals yet. So there's a lot of suggestion that perhaps the, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court justices, the conservative majority, think that it's time now to put these race-based admissions to bed. Nine states don't have race-based admissions. Uh, California doesn't uh, since 1996, correct? That's true. And there was, I think, a really informative L.A. Times article last week that looked at the, the racial composition and diversity of both UC and California State University system schools. 
And the article concluded that, first of all, UC schools are more diverse today, 25 years after California banned affirmative action, than they were under affirmative action. And the California State University system's 23 campuses almost exactly mirror the state's racial makeup. So I was surprised to see an op-ed in the NNO last week um, from UNC Chancellor Kevin Guskowitz arguing that the only way to achieve racial diversity is through race-based admissions, because I just don't think the data supports that. It may be easier, and it's a more crude method, um, but I think other states show that there are race-neutral ways to, um, to, to bring about racial diversity. Let me ask you this, Colin. Is it unfair to minorities not to consider race in admissions? Well, you know, there's two ways you can try to make up for That's someone's argument, disadvantage right? in life, right? And, and if this case goes through, you can still consider socioeconomic data. Is someone grew up in poverty? Did they have a lot of disadvantages that made it harder for them to get through high school and get to college in the first place? Um, and that inherently is going to help a lot of, you know, folks in minority groups. I mean, there's the argument to be made that if you're African-American and you grow up in a wealthy household, perhaps you have some of the same advantages as a, a white person in the same tax bracket. Um, and so that's sort of likely going to be the direction you see colleges go in, depending on how the Supreme Court rules. Joe, how do you think the Supreme Court will rule from well, what I, you've read? Yeah, I think from, from what Mitch said, it seems like the conservative justice have a very definitive opinion that perhaps this isn't the way forward for this country to make sure that we are an inclusive, pluralistic society. We, we do strive to be a more perfect union, and we are a more diverse culture and society now than we were at the time of the Civil Rights Act uh, back in the 1960s when Lyndon Johnson famously said at the bill signing ceremony, now people equally have the opportunity to run the race, but some people have been restrained so long there may be a need for some accommodation for the race to be fair. And so at some point we will have to look seriously at our culture and our society and our laws and say, have we done everything necessary to make sure there is a fairness regardless of race, gender, ethnicity, all of the, th the considerations we want to make sure are included as considerations. And these sorts of constructs may no longer be necessary. Let's hope at some point that's true for our nation. Great rap. I want to go to Mitch and talk about the most underreported story of the week, my friend. Without any fanfare, the Cooper administration has decided to drop its two-year-old lawsuit up against the Rules Review Commission, and that sounds like something that's, that people really could snooze about, but the Rules Review Commission is an important group. It's set up, appointed by members of the General Assembly, and it looks at rules that state agencies come up with and decide whether those rules comply with the law. Now, Governor Cooper had some problems with this group a couple of years ago during the height of the pandemic when a couple of his agencies wanted to come up with rules, and the commission said, no, they aren't complying with what the law says they could do. So he filed suit. We really hadn't heard a whole lot about this suit over the past couple of years, but a hearing was scheduled before a three-judge panel on November 9th, the day after the election. But then, late last week, without really notifying anyone or saying much of anything, the governor's office filed a voluntary dismissal. Now, they filed it without prejudice, which for the lawyers out there means that they could file a suit again. And there is perhaps a suggestion that if the Rules Review Commission does something again that the governor doesn't like, they might file suit. But for now, it's off. Why do you think they withdrew? Uh, they probably looked at the tea leaves. Uh, this is a case that would likely go to the to the North Carolina Supreme Court at some point, and a lot of people think that North Carolina Supreme Court is going to flip to Republican control, might be less inclined to going along with Cooper. Joe? Well, one of the most significant things in the final weeks leading up to Election Day, of course, is Halloween. And what did we experience this year? National survey, 13% increase in the cost of candy for Halloween as part of the inflationary problems that we're facing now. 
I hope that Americans will not go back to the bite-sized Snickers bars they were using once. <laughs> Full-size Snickers really matter for the young people of this country, and I'm afraid that inflation made it harder for them to get that. But in all seriousness, a vivid reminder of that economic issue as people are thinking about how they're going to cast their vote. You know, I saw the other day that peanut butter was $11 per jar. Underreported. Yeah, so we didn't talk a ton about the North Carolina Supreme Court races, but that's sort of an unreported one that the amount of money that's gone into that, we got data this week that some of the dark money groups that are uh, buying all the ads you see on TV about these what races. Are dark money groups? Uh, these are groups where we don't know who is uh, contributing to them because they're able to donate anonymously. Uh, the groups backing Democrats have spent $5 million in that race. The groups backing Republicans have spent about $4 million. And that's not including the candidates themselves who have raised, you know, close to a million dollars each. So you're seeing a lot of money going into this, probably more so than any past race because it's so important to determine who's in charge of the Supreme Court going forward. How do forward. you see those shaping up? I, I think, you know, they, they tend to track the overall trends. So I think Republicans have the advantage from that front. Um, but, you know, it's it's a sort of a low information race. So sometimes you get surprises in those races. What are the stakes? Uh, well, it's going to be control of the Supreme Court through, I think, 2027, 2028, if Republicans are able to pick up a seat or two. So that means when a uh, law gets challenged and goes up to the state Supreme Court, if Republicans have the majority for the next four or five years, that's bad news for Democrats. Pat, underreported, my friend. Sure. So this might be a little controversial, but uh, Hillary Clinton said last week that there is a plot afoot by, quote, far-right extremists to literally steal the 2024 presidential election. Those were her words. The purported extremists... She's forecasting. Yes, she's questioned the legitimacy of the next election. Uh, the purported extremists that she's referring to are North Carolina Senate Leader Phil Berger and House Speaker Tim Moore, who are backing a case that the U.S. Supreme Court will soon hear that has absolutely nothing to do with presidential elections. Um, days after Clinton cast doubt on the legitimacy of the 2024 election, President Joe Biden delivered uh, a primetime political address, um, basically saying that people who deny the outcome of elections are threats to democracy. This after his own staff said that the 2016 presidential election, quote, was stolen. The 2018 Georgia election, quote, was stolen. I agree that rhetoric about stolen elections, especially without evidence, is dangerous and destructive. Um, but I did find the president's address somewhat bizarre because I think one wonders whether he's aware that his own staff, his press secretary, has done the very thing he is decrying. Okay, let's go to the lightning round, Mitch. Who's up and who's down this week, my friend? My up and down are linked. My up is Josh Stein's legal team. The attorney general has lined up for oral arguments at the 4th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in Richmond next month. A really high-profile lawyer, a fellow named Michael Dreben, who was a former U.S. Deputy Solicitor General. He's argued more than 100 cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. He's going to be arguing on Josh yeah. Stein's behalf as he challenges this uh, campaign law against uh, uh, campaign lies. My down related to to this, Wake County District Attorney Lauren Freeman. She's running for re-election. I don't think she's going to have trouble there, but she's getting really hard hits from the Democratic Party for her role in this case against Stein. Joe, who's up and who's down this week? My well, friend? up is my respect for tuna. Some researchers uh, <laughs> studying... Uh, a, levity, a, levity. I aquatic, can always count on that from you. Aquatic life in the Pacific Atlantic and India Ocean discovered that yellowfin yeah. tuna were willing to rub, rub up against sharks to get the parasites off of their own skin. Apparently, if you rub against a shark one direction, it's rough. Okay. Sort of like Mark. So, <laughs> what, what this finds, uh, what I find amazing about this is the okay. sharks were allowing it, not eating the tuna. So these tunas are 
are really willing to go at it, get rid of these parasites down. Americans' perspective on whether or not they feel future generations will do better. Only 42% of Americans responded to the question favorably, do you think your own children will do better than you? This is down 19 percentage points since 2019 and is at the lowest level since 2011. Colin? Uh, Up this week, uh, I'd say uh, polling workers, people are sort of having a newfound respect for them when they see that, you know, the elections are being run well and these people are working long hours to to make that happen. They even got pumped up this week with a pep talk from Arnold Schwarzenegger and his pet donkey who went Pump on a... It up, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then uh, went on a video call with election workers to sort of thank them for their work. Uh, down this week, okay. uh, the proposal for North Carolina's newest town of Winnebo, just outside of Wilmington, the state treasurer, Dale Falwell, and the local government commission said this week they don't think that's financially viable. They don't want a new town created. Pat, quickly, who's up? Who's down this week? Yep, up is uh, the Republican share of early voting compared to 2018. Um, the first few minutes after 9 o'clock on election night might well say whether or not we're going to have super majorities because uh, that's when the early vote totals are released. When do you think that'll come in? So usually it's a few minutes after 9 p.m. Okay. as the early vote totals are are released. And you can you can know it's going to be closer to a blowout at that time, right? Um, and down is the Democratic Party share of early voting compared to 2018. Now, 2020 is a different story. They're much closer, much more closely aligned. But um, we'll, well have you those. noticed that Florida, I think, is a completely red state. It's off the table for 2024 right now, don't you think? Uh, in terms of a Republican winning, yeah. uh, a Democrat winning 2024 yeah. in Florida, uh, I think so. I mean, it's look, no longer I, a purple Governor state. DeSantis is going to win handily. Uh, Senator Rubio's, Rubio is going to win handily. There's been a massive surge in Republican voter registration in the state. Um, yeah, it's no longer the sort of 2000 um, swing state. That headline that next week: Polls close, election lawyers start filing lawsuits. Good to be a lawyer. <laughs> Headline next week. Polls close. This conversation starts about gubernatorial candidates in North Carolina for 2024. Do we have all the Democrats and Republicans yet known that want to run? I think the answer to that is not yet. Headline next week. Uh, several races, probably the uh, Bo Hines, Wiley, and Nickel congressional race go into overtime with the likelihood of a recount. Headline next week. Going out on a limb here. Republicans win 53 U.S. Senate seats. Okay. My prediction next week, Trump will announce prior to Thanksgiving. Great job, gents. That's it for us. Thanks for watching. Hope to see you next week on Front Row. Have a great weekend. Major funding for Front Row with Mark Rotterman is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Ewan through the Ewan Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities and by funding for the lightning round provided by Nicholas B. and Lucy Mayo Body Foundation, A.E. Finley Foundation, N.C. Realtors, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.